Welcome to Thrive, Building Resilient Families, Austin Child Guidance Center's first ever podcast. This podcast was created to normalize the challenges of parenthood and to provide parents and caregivers with strategies and support in their efforts to help their children to thrive in childhood and beyond. I'm Kristen Pierce Freaky, the Executive Director of ACGC, and I'd like to introduce today's guest, Dr. Laura Amascato. Dr. Amascato is our Senior Director of Psychological and Psychiatric Services. Prior to coming to ACGC, she worked at Sarah Reed Children's Center, a trauma-focused psychiatric residential treatment facility in Erie, Pennsylvania, and was the training director for an APA-accredited doctoral internship program. In this role, she supervised interns and postdoctoral fellows and taught them to see their clients through the lens of what happened to this child versus what's wrong with them. Today, we will be discussing the recent tragedy in Uvalde and the psychological response. Welcome to the podcast, Dr. Amascato. Well, thank you, Laura, for coming on the podcast today. Appreciate it. Of course. Um, so I guess we should just, I just want to start by talking about kind of your, how you got into the work that you're doing. So what was it or how did you decide to pursue uh, the career of being a psychologist and, uh, and specifically also working with kids? Mm-hmm. Well, I was an accountant at the time, which I know is a weird career shift, but I that's what I'd sort of fallen into doing. And I was never really going to be passionate or great at it. <laughs> and I'd always had an interest in psychology. And so I took some classes and then I applied to the John Jay College of Criminal Justice and got my master's. We had to do an externship for that. And I ended up at the Gardner-Betts program here in Austin for the juvenile justice um, you know, career sort of path. And I didn't expect to really like working with kids. That wasn't my goal. And I loved it. I really, really liked it. And my supervisor there um, was a man named Eric Fry, Dr. Fry, and he encouraged me to go get my PhD. And so I, uh, I ended up doing that. So I, I owe him a lot. <laughs> <laughs> nice. Yeah. Um, that's excellent. That's actually a great story. So, you know, what is one takeaway that you use in your career when you work with students or kids? Um, I think when it's kind of when I work with both students that I teach and then students that are like I'm working with, it's you have to be flexible. You have to be ready to pivot. Um, you never know what the kids are going to bring to you. And then once when I'm working with kids, you know, when I was at the RTF, they would call me when there was a crisis. So I was the person that got called when, you know, something was was really difficult. And I always got the adult's perspective first. And so I learned really quickly that it was better for me to go in with the idea of saying the first thing I said to the kid was, tell me, tell me what happened, because they knew the adult had talked to me first. And so if I could say to them, I know what Mr. Jason said, I know, but you tell me from your perspective, tell me what happened. And it gave them the space to feel like they were being heard. And a lot of times it also gave me the a lot of great information to see where, what had happened, why it happened, how it all unfolded, because you got both perspectives. Yeah. Just for the listeners, like what's RTF? Sorry. Oh, sorry. Yeah, it's a residential treatment facility. Okay. Thank you. <laughs> um, no, I, I mean, and I think so often, especially with adolescents, they want to feel like they're heard. They, they don't want others to speak for them. They certainly don't want other adults to speak for them. Um, and so I'm sure that that's a really powerful 
um, experience when they have an adult who comes and asks them, even though they understand that some other adult has already explained the situation. Um, so given the recent tragic events um, in Uvalde and your experience working in Texas and just your, you know, like what in your professional opinion is, you know, the best way to, to provide, to respond and to provide trauma-informed care to that community and those students? I think the, the first thing I would suggest is you want to find out what kids already know and give them space to talk and ask questions. Mm -hmm. um, there's so much going on in the news cycle. You don't know what kids have heard. You also don't know what they've heard from other kids on social media or other places. So you want to correct misinformation. You want to make sure that they aren't, you know, operating under some idea of something that's, you know, not quite right or something that's completely incorrect. Um, and you want to answer their questions, but answer them at an age-appropriate level. So, you know, for younger kids and elementary kids, you're giving very simple information and concrete examples. Um, and for the older elementary kids, you're still giving very fact-based information, but you're also trying to want to kind of separate fantasy and fiction. You know, what, what do they know? What do they not know? Um, and with older kids, it's talking to them about their feelings and listening to them about what their concerns are um, and how do they get support? Because a lot of times kids who are older, they're, they're more aware, they know, what, they know more about what's going on, they have more fears about what's going on and how can they get support when they need it. Um, one of the other things that's been said quite a bit is talking about affirming safety. And I've had a lot of my friends say to me, that feels like gaslighting. I don't, how do I say that to my child? How do I say to my child that school is safe? Right. Which is a very fair thing to say. Absolutely. And I think it's a it's a semantic argument a little bit. It's a little bit of a statistical argument. Like statistically speaking, you're if you're afraid to fly on a plane, you know, you're safer on a plane than you are in a car, which to the person who's afraid to get on the plane isn't a great argument. No. And no. also when you get on a plane, you understand that there's inherent danger in getting on a plane right. and there shouldn't be inherent danger in going to school. Right. So I think one of the things that you want to do is review with kids. What are the safety procedures at your school? Like, what are the things that school does to keep you safe? What are the things that you do to keep your child safe? What are the things that make you feel comfortable sending your child to school? And if there are things that you feel like are within your control or within your child's control that you could do differently, how do you do that? Because what you don't want to do is communicate your own anxiety to your child because it's it's not helpful. Um, but you want to give them the sense of we this is what we can control. And, and letting them understand that there are ways in which the world is a dangerous place, um, but this shouldn't be one of them. You know, so we want to balance between the realities of the world and protecting our kids and help making them feel safe in their environment. One of the really important things is affirming and validating their feelings. Um, a lot of times adults try to talk kids out of their feelings. Yeah. Tell them, oh, it's okay. It's okay that, you know, you're going to be fine. Don't worry. Don't worry. Everything's going to be okay. Um, it's okay to be afraid. You know, how do you deal with being afraid? Sure. What do we need to do to help you feel safe? What do we need to do when you, when you feel afraid? What do you do? Who do you talk to? What strategies do you use? But 
being sure that we don't try to talk kids out of their emotions, making sure that we tell them that it's okay to feel what they feel, whatever it is. No, I think that's important. And I'll just, you know, as someone who up until a year ago had school age kids, I can tell you that it was even the thought of something like this happening in my child's school was terrifying. You mentioned, you know, not for parents, not kind of letting their own anxiety get in the way of, you know, their responses to their children. What kinds of recommendations would you give to terrified parents of whom I'm sure there are many about not responding fearfully either when talking to their child about about these specific issues or maybe there's a parent that's nowhere near Uvalde but this experience has made them that much more fearful about their their child in their own community like what are some recommendations or suggestions that you might have for parents to help manage their own anxieties around this because it's it's easy to be really really scared about this this is a very very scary thing it's terrifying and i think it's a it's much like the kids, you're allowed to feel your feelings. You know, don't let someone try to talk you out of being scared. It's a scary thing to consider. And it's the kind of thing that you, it's it's not predictable. Um, so what I would suggest would be keeping, while you want to talk to your child about being safe, your fears need to be addressed and spoken about, but in a different setting. Do you have friends you can talk to? Can you talk to your spouse? You know, can you who else can you talk to about what you're feeling? Do you need to see someone to, you know, talk about my anxiety is really, really high. I can't sleep. You know, I'm having trouble eating or things. Is your anxiety so high that it's impacting your functioning? Because that's for some people that may happen and it's reasonable. I mean, this is a really, really scary situation. Um, So you want to know what your own coping strategies are. And be sure that you have your own emotions in check before you go to talk to your child, because they're going to take their cue from you about how to react. Um, and there's nothing that says that you shouldn't be afraid and that you don't have a right to those feelings. Um, but being sure that you have your own you know, areas of coping and your own supports. The other thing is a lot of times people feel more in control if they feel like they can do something. So finding your own way to, I'm going to join a group that's, you know, I'm going to go march on the Capitol. I'm going to donate money to something. I'm going to write my senator, my congressman, whatever it is. I'm going to go to the school and talk to the principal about what are the things that are being done at my child's school to make sure it's safe. I want to know, you know, that this is my child's school is as safe as it possibly can be. Um, So sometimes those are ways people can feel more in control of the situation. Yeah. Oh, those are good suggestions. I hear a lot about, you know, when, when unfortunately these kinds of things are, are not uncommon in our country and, you know, usually um, in the aftermath, there's, you know, there's a ton of um, crisis folks that come on site. There's a ton of services that come on site, you know, in the weeks uh, that follow. Um, But then when all that kind of crisis support goes away, um, you know, kind of, many students, not all, but many will need continued support. And I guess my question is, I just kind of want to talk about or hear from you about, um, you know, what what you as a parent maybe do if your child, after all those sort of immediate supports kind of start to fade away, you know, if your, your child needs continued support or if your child, you know, 
says they're okay and sort of seems okay, but you're noticing that they're, something's changed about them, something is different, and you're not really sure what that means and whether or not they need continued treatment, you know, are there signs or symptoms or things that they should look for? Mm-hmm. One thing I would say is, sort of to back up just for a second, is the we have a 24-hour news cycle, mm-hmm. and so limiting exposure to the news as much as possible is is helpful because it's a re-traumatization because you're a lot of times the 24-hour news cycle is just repeating we don't have any new information we don't have any new information so let's talk about what we already know um and then it kind of goes back to emotion you're monitoring the emotion state like how does your child presenting because for kids behavior is a language and how they're acting will tell you a lot about how they're feeling. So with little kids, you'll see it in play, how they act out their play. A lot of times they will act out, you know, aggressive things that are happening in play or, you know, people dying in play. Um, With older kids, you may, or little kids, again, you may see things like a child who's potty trained starts to regress and is, you know, wetting the bed or having nightmares. Um, With older kids, you may see things with, um, a behavior that's unusual, either withdrawing or being disrespectful or, you know, tantrum behaviors that are, you shouldn't expect to see, you normally wouldn't see in this child. Um, It can also affect sleeping. Kids can sleep too much, not sleep enough. Um, Eating is the same way. They may not want to eat or they may eat too much. Um, Anything you see that lasts more than two weeks is concerning. Yeah. You want to reach out to your PCP or a local therapist. You want to look for somebody to look into that to see, is this something that I, we need to have a long-term um, intervention on? Is this something that we can just you know, do a short-term um, someone to chat with? Is there someone at the school that they can talk to? Um, sometimes the school therapist can be really helpful, the counselor, or there's a school psychologist. Um, but you just want to be sure that you're checking in on their emotions because it will, it doesn't go away just because we shift to the next thing. Right. Uh, and I guess it feels to me like that's sort of that 25, 24 hour news cycle again. It's like, oh, you know, we kind of talked about this to, you know, and we're moving on to the next thing, but these kids and the people in these communities are still dealing with the aftermath. They're still dealing with the trauma and, um, you know, I always talk about kind of just it seems to me that our society is becoming increasingly anxious and um, hypervigilant behaviors and more anxiety based behaviors are things that anecdotally I hear about from peers and friends. And certainly in, at ACGC, we see a lot of kids who are coming in with those kinds of concerns. Um, and again, I feel like a lot of times it's happening in concert with parents. Um, and I and I. And I'm wondering, you know, for parents that kind of doing their own self-assessment, you know, at a certain point, you can't be as helpful to your child if you're, you yourself are not in a good place. Are there things that, or different things, other than the things that you mentioned that maybe some parents should be looking at in themselves, doing sort of like a self-assessment in terms of whether or not they're in a position to really support their child in a healthy way, or if they themselves need to maybe get some additional support, again, beyond the sort of immediate aftermath? I think, again, it's checking in on your emotional state. Like, how are you feeling? Are And in adults, it's similar things. Are you having trouble sleeping? Are you sleeping too much? Are you really irritable? Are you sad? You know, how do you feel 
in terms, do you feel like your behavior is different than it normally is? Are you, you know, snapping at your kid in a way you wouldn't normally or snapping at your spouse or, you know, when have other people said that to you? You know, a lot of times someone will say to you, are you okay? You seem different. Um, and reaching out to people, you know, who's your, who's your support community? Who, who do you have that you can talk to? And then again, reaching out to your primary care physician or a mental health provider, someone that can, that can help you get some coping strategies and figure out, you know, what will be helpful to you in order to get yourself online so that you can still be supportive to your family and your, and your child. Yeah. Uh, so without getting into a convert, a political conversation about like gun laws, because <laughs> um, you know, that's a whole other thing. Um, what do you think we need to do as a society outside of that to sort of, you know, take, start making steps in the right direction towards preventing these tragedies from continuing to happen? I mean, in this case, the perpetrator was 18 years old, you know, technically an adult, but barely. Um, and often in these situations, perpetrators are kids, you know, like in your professional opinion, what, if, what thoughts do you have on that? Well, they've been doing research on school violence since before Columbine and Columbine was 23 mm -hmm. years ago, um, which is shocking and terrible. Um, but people tend to want to focus on getting tough with schools. They want to install metal detectors and they want to wand kids and they want them to bring clear backpacks. And the research shows that that isn't the way to go. It doesn't work. That what works is um, social support for kids and social emotional learning. And they want you, kids want to feel respected and connected. Mm -hmm. They want to feel like they belong in school. So when you build relationships with the kids, they feel more comfortable and they're much less likely to have aggressive behavior. Um, teaching social emotional learning teaches conflict resolution and empathy and coping strategies for stress. Um, Anti-bullying tra bullying training. Bullying seems to come up a lot with these kids that are school shooters. Mm -hmm. um, and I think the important thing for, for that is that adults need the anti-bullying training as well. There's a lot of adults that just don't know how to handle that. They don't know what to say. Um, they're kind of trying to balance between you need to stand up for yourself and, oh, you don't need to care what that other kid thinks. Um, so I think that becomes an issue. But the, the most important thing for safety is building relationships with their students. That's what, what seems to be the biggest, biggest issue. Yeah. I appreciate that. Any final thoughts before we wrap up? Um, I mean, I think just kids want to connect and they want to feel like they belong somewhere. And I think kids who have those relationships with a teacher or a coach or a choir teacher, they're more likely to reach out when they need help or when they see someone else who needs help, a friend or a peer. And I think if your students feel like you don't trust them, then they don't trust you. Right. And I think that's the that's the lens we need to flip that we need to make them feel welcome in school and feel trusted. And that's that will, I think, make a big difference. Thank you so much, Laura. Thank you, Dr. Amiscato. Appreciate everything today. Of course, thank you. Okay, bye. Bye. It's been a great conversation here on the Thrive Building Resilient Families podcast. 
We hope you were able to listen a little, learn a lot, and leave with a better understanding of this important topic. You can follow Austin Child Guidance Center on Twitter and Instagram at ATX Child Guide and Facebook at Austin Child Guidance Center to stay updated with this podcast and other resources. We'll be back in two weeks with a new episode, so stay tuned. Thank you for listening and thank you for prioritizing the mental health needs of your family. See you next time.